Good morning. That passage out of the Isaiah is considered one of the most powerful prayers for a revival. I know we talk about revival in America. And in this passage, the call is for God to come down and display his awesome power. But they ask this question. Why isn't God doing his great awesome display of his glory? And what we find out is that God's desire for his people. What's his heart desire is that he wants to do wonderful things beyond their imagination. But it's their sin that's preventing him from sharing his blessings. And so in this prayer revival, there is a prayer of confession that we have sinned, that even our good works that we think we do well are really nothing more than filthy rags in his sight. And our sin is what keeps the work and blessing of God away. Now I had Mike read that prayer for this reason. When we start talking about injustice, starting points are critical. And when we start thinking about injustice in our culture, we usually look where? Out there somewhere. How could they? We do that historically. We do that with current evil. And it's my take that America is fast becoming the culture that we discover in the book of Judges. If you read two interesting phrases in that book, And by the way, it is one of the most violent books in all the Old Testament when you read it. There's an interesting phrase that says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Truth no longer matters, just my version of truth. But remember Joseph last week? When confronted with a particular situation where he could have sinned and he probably could have gotten away with it with Potiphar's wife... He says this, how could I commit this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, I think today we don't understand the critical nature of sin, the depth of it. I don't think we understand the evil of it. And we rarely look at how unjust we are to God. I know doctrinally we talk about sin. This is what it means that, yes, I'm a bad sinner, but... You're worse than I am. That's generally how we look at it. And there's very little specific confession. Just this generalization that, okay, yeah, we're, we're sinners. Now, last week we began looking at the issue of integrity and injustice and, and how we respond to that. I wasn't going to get into all the injustice in our culture, but rather, as believers of Christ, what does it mean to practice the presence of Jesus when we are faced with injustice, whether it's real or true? And so we began with the story last week. We see the injustice from his brothers. They sold him into slavery. We see the injustice of him being bought and sold as a slave. We see the injustice of the false accusation from Potter's wife, who he refused sexual advances from. And can you imagine the conversations going around in Potiphar's household and in the culture of his day? Questioning about who Joseph was and his integrity and everything else. But remember the principles we looked at last week? Just let me review them. First is integrity is forged in the fire of injustice. We saw how, yes, there is injustice. But as a Christian, our response is to be Christ followers. 
And that's very, very different than how we react to injustice in our culture. Transformation begins at home. That means me. We talked about how we have no control over circumstances, but we do have control over our responses. And we looked at the fact that integrity demands that we align ourselves with Christ and seek to live a faithful presence in our culture. So let me begin with this question this morning. What do you do when life interrupts your plans? By life, I mean something you didn't expect, something you perceive as unjust. What do you do? How do you respond when life interrupts your plan? And again, doctrinally, we know we recite these words all the time. We say God is in control. But practically speaking, we live as if we are in control. I mean, look at our common reactions. Life's not fair. Or that's not fair. And there's this perceived injustice. And we use the word perceived in a variety of opinions. And we just don't even quite know how to deal with that. And very little do we respond. Now in our culture, we are famous for doing what when we have a perceived injustice? We call a lawyer and we sue. (laughs) Remember the... Stella Liebach, who sued McDonald's for spilling hot coffee on herself while driving? Well, that's just not the only case. I looked a few up this past week, and and I said to myself, this is the insanity of where we are at with our perceived injustice. Kathleen Robertson, who lived in Texas, was awarded $80,000 by a jury of her peers after breaking her ankle, tripping over a toddler who was running around in a furniture store. Now, the owners were surprised at the verdict, considering the misbehaving little toddler was her son. (laughs) Carl Truman, 19 years old, Los Angeles, won $74,000 in medical expenses when his neighbor ran over his hand with a Honda Accord. Carl evidently did not notice someone was at the wheel of the car when he was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. But he sued anyone. Here's one from Pennsylvania. Terrence Dickinson, Bristol, PA. He was leaving a house he had just finished robbing by way of the garage. He could not get the garage door to go up since the door was malfunctioning. He could not re-enter the house because he locked the door into the garage. The family was on vacation, so he lived in the garage for eight days on a case of Pepsi and a large bag of dried dog food. Now, you know and I know the garage doors, you do what? You pull the cable, lift the garage, okay? But he sued. He claimed mental anguish, and the jury agreed to the tune of $500,000. Why do we view something as unjust? I mean, I'm amazed that a guy who robs a house gets locked in a garage considers that injustice. Someone who tries to steal something of a car, injustice. Somebody who is driving down the road with a cup of coffee between her legs, trying to navigate, and it spills around a corner or a bump, and that's injustice. I would call it something else, but I won't mention that this morning. But how do we handle injustice? How do we handle when it's out there and doesn't touch us? 
When it's not part of our world? And how do we handle it when it gets personal? And I have to confess, I see Christians respond in two ways. When it's out there, it's kind of like, well, there's one opinion. When it happens to them, oh, it's entirely different because it happened to me. Now let's read our story. We're in Genesis 39. We're just looking at a few verses this morning. Remember Joseph being sold, gets bought by Potiphar, gets the false accusation. We find him in prison now. So what happens to Joseph? And again, understand this has been happening over a period of years, not weeks, not months, but years. Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Again, note the words. The Lord was with two times. The Lord showed. The Lord gave him favor. The Lord made it succeed. And this is the third, and there could have been more, but these are the third that's recorded in a series of injustice towards Joseph that he had to endure over years that we know of. But his response was to practice the presence of God even in the midst of the injustice, and God did what? He blessed him. He favored him. Now, you and I would say, well, if he's going to bless him and favor him, get him out of prison. Get him out of slavery. Get him elsewhere. Well, that happens later on, doesn't it? And we'll look at that in the next two weeks. But I want to really further look at the kind of lessons that we can learn from this that we began talking about last week. But when you look at this picture of the state, what are some lessons we can learn? Here's the first. Families will have conflicts and do unimaginable harm to each other. You look back and say, how could Joseph's brothers do this to him? And by the way, this was before video games or television. They weren't part of a gang. And you have to say, if families do this, just think of those outside of families. Think about what sin does to our world. And this is where I believe we do not take sin seriously. We live in a fallen world. Sin brings death. Yes, it brings physical death, but it brings death to perspectives. It brings death to truth. It brings death to relationships. In our world, there are people in your global community who want to kill you. Not because you offended them, not because you're mean or deserve to die, just because of a different ideology. Let's talk about North Korea. It's been in the news. We're all worried about what our president and what their leader is going to do and what they're saying. Here's what you don't find in the news. The last 16 years, Korea has been the most dangerous country to live for Christians. It is the most persecuted in the world. In a recent article I read this past week, they claim there are 9 million Christians. 36% of the population is Christian. That's higher than our population by percentage. They're living with incredible injustices. What you don't find in the paper is 
Their leader has concentration camps just for Christians. And 75% of those that get sent to the concentration camps do not survive. The three top ways they deal with Christians in concentration camps. One, they like to run over them with steamrollers. Just lay them down and ride right over. Two, use them for biological warfare tests. See what happens. And three, they like to hang them on a cross over fire. And what is their response? What are the Christians' response in North Korea? They just seek to further the gospel. And the church is alive, and it's well, and it's growing. But due to their ideology, due to their perspectives, due to the sin of people that oppose them and distorts reality, they face arrest, imprisonment, and even death on any given day. If they would worship in a setting like this, they wouldn't know whether guards would come in and they would never see each other again. My point is this, sin destroys It destroys the guilty and the innocent, and there is no rhyme or reason to sin. I mean, try to intellectually explain the Holocaust. Try to intellectually explain, in various groups around the world, ethnic cleansing. Try to explain some religious zealots raiding a wedding of a different religion and slaughtering everyone on the day of their wedding and their guests. I don't know what you've been sensing, but the last couple of weeks, I think I've had a great sadness about our own country. You've been reading the news about Charlottesville, Virginia, and what's going on there, where a group of people who have an ideology that skin pigmentation and ethnic heritage makes people inferior, superior. We get many names for them. They're called National Socialists, KKK, White Supremacists. Bottom line, it's evil. It's sin. And what's happening is beyond rational thought and innocent people are hurt and they die. At least the shouting matches blame and accusations. But we as the church have to ask ourselves the question as kingdom of God citizens, how do we respond? I mean, I think we got to call out evil for what it is. It's not a time to be silent. And much of our response needs to be more than just words. And at the same time, we remember that everyone was created in the image of God and his desire is for his son to redeem and restore them. And that includes those that are caught up in this ideology of white supremacy. And our response is not going to be getting into a shouting match with whoever. Our response is to attempt to bring peace and dignity. And this is why we have community because we need each other to deal with multiple aspects of this injustice. Let me give an illustration. Many of you know, at least part of my history has been dealing with the injustice of fathers and mothers and others who sexually molest their innocent children. And those stories, and you hear me say things like, there are things I wish I didn't know. I mean, I will admit those stories accumulate and they take their toll. Now, intellectually, I know That the perpetrators, people who do these horrible things, who commit this evil, intellectually I know that they're made in the image of God and Christ desires to redeem them and restore them. 
I intellectually know that. Emotionally, I got a very different reaction. Now, I realized a long time ago that I'm not a good person to build that relationship with the perpetrators. Because in my humanity, I'll be honest, I want them to pay. I see the damage. I see the destruction. I see the horror of the sin. But I realize somebody has to go and be that redemptive voice to them. Now, I had an ideal situation when we lived in Barrie, Canada. I had a friend. I dealt with the victims. He dealt with the offenders. And I, I got to tell you, I, I remember our conversations sometimes where I look at my friend and I just say, you know what? They don't deserve. Don't help them. But in my mind, I knew that in my sin, I did not deserve. But somebody came along and helped me. See, that's where I think we don't understand the depth of our sin. Because somehow they don't deserve and I do. No. For all have sinned. See, the problem in our culture is that depending who we associate with, we get labeled, we get judged, we get condemned. I remember walking into a training session because Georgian College sent me there. It was called Level 3 Training of uh, People Who Worked with Abuse Victims. There's about 500 people there. And I go walking in and guess how many men were there? One. <laughs> me. And I got to tell you, I experienced some hostility And when they found out I was a preacher, I experienced more hostility. And there's a group of women that literally said, you cannot help victims because number one, you're a man. And number two, you're a Christian. That was their perspective. That was their reality. You know, in the church, you hear me say all the time, there are things that should never divide us. And I think God's spirit weeps at our narrow, arrogant perspectives. And what's amazing is that we end up committing injustice that we are not even aware of. Now, let me make this side note. You've been seeing in the bullets in the last couple of weeks this town hall this afternoon. By the way, it's really for everyone. So if you're here and you're visiting for the first time, you're welcome to come. We're not going to vote on anything. So that should make you feel safe. <laughs> so when you vote on things, people get all unnerved. It's really a time to be together. It's, it's a time to share stories about this past year, what God's up to. It's time to share stories about what God's up to right now in our present, but also to look to our future, to discern where God is leading us. So I just want to say, if you're new, you're welcome to come. We're going to throw some hot dogs and burgers in the grill, get to know each other better, explore our hearts, try to navigate everything that's going on around us. Because I imagine you're like me. I see what's happening in our world and it just, there's a growing sadness this past month because of, I don't know, just it, it, it feels like we're getting crazy anymore. Here's the second lesson. Sexual temptation will exist in the workplace. Now, it exists everywhere. That's the downside of technology, isn't it? It's very pervasive. But you look at our cultural shifts It used to be that there was just one person in the household working. Now there's two. A lot more men and women work together. And I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying that there is more opportunity today 
to be unfaithful than ever before. And sexual temptation has many faces. You read some articles about the pornification of America, the social media, the sexting, the books, the TVs, and things that we are comfortable with today, we were not comfortable with 20 years ago. That's just how we become immune to it. All I'm saying is this. You have to be intentional what you put before your eyes and what you put before your minds and what you put into your lives. It is so easy to grow numb to this. But Joseph talks about sexual temptation and the injustice of it. Third lesson, it's the power of the accusation. If you notice today, people are guilty and they have to prove their innocence. Accusation and creating suspicion. People are careless and vindictive with their words. And and the truth is what I feel and what I see. And they take words and phrases and they manipulate them to suit our truth. That's what's happening in our news media today. That's why I kind of do this. Click. That's turning it off. We label, we distort, we create narratives that are alternatives and avoid much of the truth. And the only thing that matters anymore is what you can get people to believe. But here's what Proverbs says about that. 1821, the tongue has the power of life and death. I've experienced that in my own journey. And again, when I was going to Lancaster Bible College, they taught you to do certain things, you know, kind of keep your eyes and your nose clean and clear. But I realized that an accusation can take down even the most innocent person, depending what people choose to believe. I had to deal with a situation one time and there was a particular family in this church we went there who would run the pastor out. That was their main mission. And I still remember that they invited us over the first night we moved there is in Canada. And they talked about how they have high hopes for us and everything else. And a month later they brought us back into their house and said, well, we gave you a chance. We just want to let you know we're going to try to get rid of you. At least they let me know. But one day I got a call from this family and their niece moved to town and she was engaged in an abusive relationship. Her husband, who was a body lifter and into all that kind of stuff, would beat her and put her in the hospital on a regular basis. She wasn't a believer. She fled the house. She took her kids with her. And they said, listen, would you stop by and would you talk to her and maybe get her to come out to church? So I did. And Bev knew where I was going. This is pre-cell phone days. I know for some of you, you can't imagine that. And I still remember doing the right thing. I stood on her porch in the middle of a community, houses everywhere, never went in the house, and I talked to her. Well, that night, someone called me and says, Pastor, there's a rumor running around that you were going into a house of a single woman, or you were seen at a house of a single woman. Well, I knew who spread it. I went, confronted them. I said, you asked me, I went. Second, you realize that you've made it impossible for me now to go back and to talk with her because of this situation. And they were not apologetic. And they go, well, it was true. We can't help how people take it. But I said, why did you put it out there in the first place? If you're really concerned for her soul and for her salvation, why did you put it out there? And they had no answer. So I realized one accusation, that could have took me out. 
So, do you hold on to your reputation or your integrity? It's a difference, you know that. Joseph's reputation, I imagine among many, was pretty bad by the time he hit prison. But his integrity, he held on to. See, the difference is, you live with integrity even in light of an unjust accusation where you lose your reputation. Fourth lesson. Everyone has choices. And choices are made based upon our perceptions. For instance, how many people here this morning are rich? Raise your hand. Why aren't you raising your hand? Do you realize, according to the global rich list, if you and your household, okay, if in your household you made $50,000, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. That means out of 6 billion people, you are richer than 590, 940 billion people. But you got choices. And realize that in our world, you will have people that will treat you unjustly. People will betray you. They will disappoint you. They will accuse you. They will try to take you out. And you can let injustice fester. And you can seek revenge. You can protest, crusade. You can try to right the injustice. Or you can deal with it in Christ. And realize that even in prison, the Lord is with you. That he will bless you. That he will watch over you. Even in the midst of a country like North Korea. Where they face death on a regular basis. Injustice demands that they follow and preach the gospel. I guess what I'm saying is this. I've already kind of confessed that. Our present culture in America just makes me extremely sad these past couple weeks. But the truth is we are not subject to the winds of our culture. Rather, we choose to bow to the winds of the spirit. And that's why Peter writes to a persecuted church where religious bigotry was putting many in harm's way and killing some. And he says this, be ready to give an answer for the hope people see in you. And when you talk about injustice, hope is always born out of forgiveness. John Corson talking to people and allowing their anger and their sense of injustice to fester says this. When you hold on and you refuse to forgive, he said it's like taking a bottle of poison, swallowing it, and then waiting for the other person to die. It's a good description. Leonard Sweet says this, where the spirit is most at work in the world is where Christianity is wanting to run wild, even in the choke of persecution and opposition. I'll admit to you that it's kind of scary when we pray for revival because when you study revival, it always happens, usually in the midst of persecution. I mean, I would long for the gospel to be spreading like it is in North Korea. I don't long for the injustice they face. The greatest feature of Christianity in the southern world is the belief in miracles and a personal God who wears enough to intervene directly in everyday life. 
So where do I begin? I hope you're asking that question. And I hope you begin at the beginning. And I go back to the first part of my message. You start with confessing your sin and you accept Christ. Now, for some of you, you've never done that before. And you need to make that decision. For others, you need to confess your sin and you need to forgive. You need to listen to Christ's word. You need to let the Spirit speak to you from the word. God's word is very practical. Amen? Remember Paul writing. And he sees the injustice of his day. I mean, he lived in Rome. You've studied the history of Rome. He knew about the injustice of Israel's religious leaders. I mean, he was an insider for a while and and he did the persecution. He did the killing of Christians just over a particular ideology. And these were good people, at least in the world's eyes. But Paul writes to them. Before I read this, I just want to ask this question because I went back to begin at the beginning And if you're here this morning and you need to confess your sin and accept Christ, you've never done that. I want to give you that opportunity. So if you're here and and our tradition has been this, we kind of just stand and we take somebody out with you because they need to sit down and explain some things to make sure you understand. If you're here this morning and that's the desire of your heart, you may be scared. You may be thinking I'm a little crazy, but we just want you to stand up. And this is a safe place to do that in. And we'll have somebody kind of pair up with you and go from there. So if someone's here this morning and wants to accept Christ as their Savior, just kind of stand up right now. And I'm going to step back because it's easier for me to see when I get out of the light. There we go. <laughs> okay, there's one. Um, I'm trying to think, where's Greg at? Tim, okay. Tim, Lisa, come up and greet you, Okay. I think the appropriate response, people, is what? Is there anyone else? Okay, you can go with Mr. Harnish. Here's how we're going to close. And uh, Chris, I'm going to kind of take the last song off the record, if that's okay. Um, I said Paul writes, and he's incredibly practical. And so we're going to read some scripture together. And I want this scripture to really sink in. I want it to listen to the words, listen to the specifics that he's talking about, okay? And in honor of God's word, I want you to stand with me. And let's read this together. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now just think about that. Abhor what is evil. Don't get used to it. Just don't bring it into your house. Don't bring it into your head. Abhor what is evil. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I like verse 11 because... It says slothful zeal. You know what that means? It says don't be lazy in your Christian faith. And the verse before it, outdo each other in showing honor, not picking each other apart and dividing. Verse 12, 
Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. <coughs> Look at verse 11. I mean, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is literally the word for love for strangers. This isn't inviting your friends in your house, which is a good thing. This is inviting strangers into your house, even at times your enemies. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sights. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is what we've been talking about. You know, what does it mean to live in a world of injustice? Well, we always, as kingdom of God people, live out Christ, regardless of the circumstance. Verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Paul recognizes some situations are not redeemable, not because Christ isn't able, it's because people are unwilling. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. That's that transcendent view that says, listen, I don't have to worry about payback. God will take care of it someday. It's in his hands. I'm going to trust him. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, again, you don't do that because it says, I'm going to burn him. (laughs) Okay? That's not what that means. The burning coals on his head have to do with conviction. And of course, people respond to conviction two ways. One is they yield and give in and follow Christ. Or two, they just kind of disappear. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can Paul be any more specific? I don't think so. Now, if you don't know what to do with it, reread this passage. Go down through. God's spirit will light your mind and your soul up on that one. Amen? As we go this week, may we go regardless of our circumstances and may we as his people display his glory, his marvelous glory. And may people ask us about the hope that we have. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.